Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the third episode of the Debunking Economics podcast, featuring, of course, the esteemed professor Steve Keane, the head of the School of Economics, History and Politics at Kingston University in London, and author of the book Debunking Economics. And I'm Phil Dobby. Thanks for joining us again. And today we're looking at interest rates. They're always in the news. Every month, the governors of central banks around the world meet and decide, will those interest rates go up, go down, or stay where they are? But what are they deciding? How much influence does it have on the broader economy? And how does it relate to how much your bank charges you or pays you in interest? And if they're so influential in economic policy, how come with interest rates so low around the world, we're not seeing the expected economic payback from it? That's all coming up on the Debunking Economics Podcast, Episode 3. Now, Steve, part of the reason for talking interest rates today was because Himel Patel, a listener, uh, not an economist by trade, he's a product development engineer at Fisher & Paykel Healthcare, he responded to our first episode when we talked about inflation and how, in theory, it had the benefit of lowering the value of our debts. Uh, But Himel says he doesn't get it. Isn't the interest rate on debt normally greater than the inflation rate? So any gain you get from a higher inflation rate will be lost by the greater interest you paid. Uh, Now, we can see his point, but that isn't always the case, is it? No, I think there have been several periods where the uh, rate of interest has been below the rate of inflation. This was actually the prelude to the to the, to the Vockler uh, tightening of interest rates back in the, uh, the uh, I was with the, uh, I forgot the actual date, it's so long ago, about the 80s, uh, when Vockler was chief of the uh, Federal Reserve and he put rates up dramatically, pretty much following the monetarist script that if you do that, there'll be a rapid adjustment of prices and uh, inflation will fall without much impact on real output. Of course, what actually happened was a recession, <clears throat> but in that recession, interest rates went extremely high, but they lagged behind the rate of inflation, So, and actually lagged behind the reserve rate as well. So for some substantial time, in fact, the real rate of interest was, was substantially negative, and that therefore meant if you were paying debt, if you had debt to repay, it was actually repaid by the, the difference between the low rate of interest relatively and the high rate of inflation. So let's let's take a step back and look at interest rates. So when the central bank of any country sets uh, an interest rate, or they're sometimes called the bank rate, who are they charging? They're charging the banks. They're charging the private banks. And this is what people get wrong in thinking about the reserve setting rates. It's setting a rate that applies for anybody who needs to either to borrow reserves from the central bank. And uh, again, our entire thinking about the role of reserves and lending is wrong. Uh, banks don't lend out the reserves, and the Bank of England has come out categorically saying that uh, just a couple of years ago. But they are part of the cost that you have in doing business when you have to settle your transactions between different banks. So, uh, and, and, and banks also hang on to reserves in case there's any demand from the housing sector for cash. That's really the major reason reserves are there. Right, and that's not, that, yeah. that reserve yeah. that they have, I mean, they don't keep yeah. it in their own bank, they keep that in the, in the, in the central bank as well. Well, there's two elements. They, they they keep physical cash to some extent in their own vaults, and that's what's necessary uh, when you need to, you know, go and top up the ATMs or give extra cash if there happens to be a queue standing outside, like with Northern Rock some 
some decade or so ago. Uh, and the main the main rules, the reason they set rules is to have that percentage of money on hand so that if banks need to cover a run, they can do it. Uh, the, the rule in America is the people hear about a 10% reserve rate. That is actually, the banks are required to hold 10% of the value of household deposits. So it's actually driven by the desire to have enough that if there's a, a panic by the housing sector, the bank has enough either on hand or it can make a, a direct call to the the Federal Reserve to supply it with cash right. without needing to actually ask for an extra demand. It's already got it in its account, so to speak. So that ten, that's the that, main role that reserves. That 10% yeah. that you're talking about. So high street banks or commercial banks, they have this, uh, they, I mean, it, it's a requirement that's placed on them, isn't it? They don't say, oh, 10% yeah. seems like a, a good figure. That's a, a requirement that's placed. Yeah, that's right. They still, still have, when you take it away, they still have some sort of guide like that themselves anyway. And uh, and and that is, is just in case there is a, a physical demand for cash. That's, and I can, you know, you can mention during the Great Depression, there was quite a bit of that. And uh, because the reserves were substantially less than their deposits, then it was easy to get to the stage where they had to dip into their equity. And once they did that, they have negative equity and they fold. Right. Uh, so that's, it's, it's, it's much more an accounting exercise than the magic money tree creation nonsense that people get taught in economics textbooks about needing reserves and multiplying them out to lend. That's just nonsense. So, okay, well, I want to talk a bit more about that, but that, let's start on that 10% figure. So that 10%, uh-huh. uh, which is what it is in the United States, that uh-huh. isn't, they don't have to hold that 10% in cash or in gold no. ingots in their basement. Most no. of that money will be sitting in the Federal Reserve. Yeah, and then what then, what then happens is that money is then used when there's a purchase made by one person uh, from somebody else who banks with a different bank because you then actually need to have the transfer of the reserves when that sale goes through. Uh, so if you, if, you, if, you have a, if you bank with Barclays and I bank with Lloyds and I buy something off you, then my Lloyds account goes down and your Barclays account goes, goes up. But to enable that transaction to occur, the, the fact that the, the liabilities of Lloyds are falling because my deposit's gone down, the assets fall by exactly the same amount. And those assets are then transferred to the to the Barclays, and that's the role that reserves play. Unless uh, and, and, and the banks are actually able to operate with negative reserves, they they don't actually have to have the reserves in possession. Uh, the rules are they have to have the reserves within some substantial period of time. Now, in most countries, that's thirty days, but I think actually in Europe, they're now allowing banks to have to get their reserves up to the so-called result required ratio up to ninety days after uh, the event. So the reserves are a massively lagging uh, buffer in the in the system to lubricate uh, interbank transfers, but they're not required for lending. In fact, they cannot be. It is physically impossible to lend reserves out. You might get a loan given to you in cash, but that is not a that, that is not a not a case. Or you might get a loan and then take cash out, but that is not a case that the bank is lending you their cash reserves. So th- does the Reserve Bank, in a way, it's like a bank for banks, isn't it, really? So is it like pretty much the same as uh, holding a, a retail account? So if uh, I have that 10% that I'm required to hold, that's sitting in the Reserve Bank, yeah. uh, and uh, interest rates are low, then I'm, I'm not going to be earning very much on that, on, the, on that interest rate. Therefore, as a bank, it's harder for me to make money. Is that the way it works? The interest rate, you're thinking about it as if that's a deposit account, they're getting money paid by the yeah. government. That's not the usual case. Uh, the case when we talk about a reserve rate of interest, that's the rate of interest that bank, central bank charges if a private bank goes to it and says, we want to borrow some reserves from you. And if you have an expanding level of loans, creating an expanding level of deposits by the private banks, and there's a reserve requirement as well, with a, you know, a one or two or three month lag and needing to fulfill it, uh, an individual bank might find itself 
the, the system in general might find itself having to borrow money from the central bank to, give, to meet that reserve requirement. And there's also can be an interest rate on the reserves they currently have at the moment. And that's what's happening right now. That's why we're hearing about negative interest rates, because there is, there, there's, there's a required level of reserves. Let's say the total loans in the society are 10 trillion and they've created 10 trillion in, in deposits. Then the banks are required to hang on to 10% of that as reserves, which would mean they've got to have an additional one trillion in reserves. And they have to, if if they actually have two trillion, which of course has happened courtesy of quantitative easing, they've got excess reserves they don't want to actually have, but they can't get rid of, because um, that's it's a bit like you've pumped oil into a car. There's too much oil, and you tell the car to remove the oil. It hasn't got a way of doing that. Mm. Um, so consequently, they're now saying, and this this is this is where you get the, the naivety of conventional economists, because the people who run central banks are mainly theoretical economists. They're not practical banking people. I understand how these things operate. And what they're saying is, well, we're going to charge you a negative rate on those excess reserves to try to make you lend them out. Right. And that simply can't lend them out. When you sit down and do the accounting, it is impossible for the banking system as a whole to get rid of the reserves. Because there's, uh, unless because, people physically take it out as cash, right? Okay, because because the, they basically lent out as much as they physically can. There's, there's no one to no, lend them no, no, to, no. or it would be too high risk. No, no, no. It's simply physically impossible to do it. If you let's say let's say you actually uh, want to give somebody a loan, you can't use your reserves to give them a loan because giving somebody a loan means increasing your assets. Mm. Lending your reserves means reducing your assets. You can only get the reserves down if somebody takes uh, deposits, which are your liabilities, takes them out of your banking system, and then your reserves drop when they do that. But if they do that, if I let's let's say, for example, you got a loan from, let's go back. I said they say you had Barclays as your bank. Yeah, I think so. You get a you get a loan from Barclays. <laughs> so Barclays assets rise by the amount they let's say they lend you a million quid. So your your deposit account in in Barclays all goes up by a million quid. Now. Let's say Barclays would like to reduce its reserves. One way it can do that is you take your cash out of the million quid and you buy something from me. I'll sell you a microphone for a million quid. I'm quite a reasonable guy. Um, so I then, you, you then, I then send you the microphone. You transfer the million quid to me. That means your bank account in Barclays falls by a million quid and so do Barclays reserves. But guess what happens to Lloyd's? Its reserves go up. The only way you can remove the reserves from the system is if people take it out in cash. Right. Got now, it. this this is the practical reality that central bankers who have been trained on a theory of economics in which, believe it or not, I still find it, I've got to repeat this, this makes me crazy that I've got to say it, but it's true. The theory of economics that leaves banks debt and money out of the thinking completely. And, and yet then it's they're so trying to manage a monetary system. <laughs> it's so central to the way the economy works. Absolutely. Mm, so look, yeah. as as you've said, most of the money which is uh, which which we borrow from from high street banks is money that doesn't exist. It's money that the, the high street bank has created, not the central bank. The, the high street bank has said, based on a calculated risk, that it's never going to be called for. Um, so that means the influence of the interest rate from the central bank on the actions of those high street banks is is quite limited because what we're talking exactly. about is is only 10% of the 100% which is loaned in effect yeah it's quite a, it's quite a, tr a trivial impact and what it actually uh, what it does is it sets the base rate that banks can borrow from each other they prefer to borrow reserves from each other uh, rather than borrowing from the central bank it's just it's, it's like a, a macho thing in some ways you don't want to show you actually need the help of the state system so the practice has developed that Again, in that case, if, if you actually had a, 
you know, if, let's say the other situation, if you borrowed, borrowed this million dollar microphone from me and Barclays reserves had fallen below their reserve level courtesy of you making the purchase, then of course when it, the money ends up in Lloyd's account, Lloyd's is going to be over its level. So what uh, Barclays then say, would you mind lending me back some of that cash as, as, as a loan of reserves? And, the, and Barclays, uh, Lloyd's does that and says we're going to charge you the rate that the central bank sets the reserve rate for that loan. So that's and then of course that's then setting a, like an effective a notional cost of capital and that becomes the effective floor for the rates that the banks will then charge to the public. So you tend to get that rate plus a plus a markup as the rate they actually charge for mortgages and credit or credit cards are a markup beyond belief. Of course, that's one yeah. of the, the most profitable scams going. But things like commercial loans or mortgage loans and so on, they tend to be a, a, a cost of funds plus profit margin markup on the reserve interest rate. So when when banks start lending to each other, um, it's it's because they uh, they need to meet that that ten percent reserve, isn't it? So some people might be above it, some people might be below it, and so they 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 borrow to each other to make sure that uh, overall they're, they're they're all hitting that requirement. But I mean for for the for the uh, for some banks, that's I mean that's a bit like paying off your credit card using another credit card, isn't it? It's it's sailing a bit close to the wind. Yeah, it's not all that important because the reserves. As I said, there's a lagging requirement. You can actually operate it with negative reserves for quite some substantial time, if necessary, reserves well below whatever the so-called reserve limit might be. And a lot of countries in the world do not have a reserve rule at all, Australia being one of them. I think England might also not have a rule. America does, but I said it's only related to 10% of housing, uh, housing sector deposits, nothing to do with commercial lending or overseas uh, deposits and all that sort of jazz. Um, <clears throat> so the main way they sell close to the wind is, by, is, is not their reserves, it's their equity. Because there's a classic, what's called the the, uh, the fundamental law of accounting, which is assets minus liabilities equals equity. Now, if you have a, a fall, if you if you have to write some of your assets off, such as loans, uh, then when you write the assets down, nothing happens to your liabilities. What happens is your equity falls by as much as your asset falls when you do the write-off. Now, if you have a very high ratio of your of loans to equity, if you have like a, a 30 to 1 ratio, which which is the sort of level you got to during the speculative excesses in the 2008 uh, bubble, uh, in that situation, writing off a few of your loans or any writing down any of your other assets and valuation as well, as happened to happen to banks like Lerman's as well, means equity goes negative. And when, it goes, when equity is negative, it's bankrupt. That's when it has to shut down. The only bank in the world that could operate without with negative equity is the central bank. So tell me about those equity requirements then. So, so because there is a because there's a requirement on that as well, isn't there? No, 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 there isn't. This is one. This is where we have uh, where bubbles develop and where, where you can get you know, system breakdowns because a, a bank uh, effectively profits by being able to have a certain amount of equity and using that equity to generate uh, assets, which are income earning assets. And there's always the temptation for banks to go from say like a like, let's say that you have a Let's say you have a very conservative bank, which has a rule that its equity has to be 20% of its assets. Uh, in that particular case, if there's a, if you have to write off 10% of your assets, which would be a huge write-down for any any particular bank, they've still got 10% positive equity. But if you have a bank which gets to a, a 30 to 1 ratio, which is the sort of level that Lerman & Co. got to, then anything that involves you to write down the assets by 3% or more in value, whether that involves the write-down and the price of a set of speculative assets like CDOs or the write-off of debt when debts goes bad, that can eliminate your equity. Now, as soon as you're operating with negative equity, you are bankrupt. And that's that's the real danger. That's why when, when that particular event occurs, that's why you have financial crises as well as just economic downturns. So 
finally then, the role of interest rates. Given that, um, you know, as we've discussed, it it's only, a, only relates to a very small proportion of the amount of money that's actually operating in the economy. Is it, is it really a truly effective measure? No, this this is why uh, it's it's an effective measure in the minds of neoclassical economists because they have two little fictional elements to their thinking. One is that the interest rate is the main thing which changes the rate of both consumption and investment. So putting up the rate of interest will reduce invest investment and reduce consumption and inspire people to save more money, and that will slow the economy down. And then they have this idea that uh, that banks lend out what they have in reserves. So by varying the reserve interest rate, they think they control the amount of lending. And that's why they think if they put a negative rate on excess excess reserves, they can actually encourage banks to lend this stuff out. So it's in their mythical world that plays a major role. In the real world, it doesn't. And this is one of the main dangers. We're managing the world using tools of a mythical theory of economics. <laughs> All right, so we get back to our, uh, our original question, uh, which came from one of our listeners. Isn't the interest rate on debt normally greater than the inflation rate, so any gain you get from a, a higher inflation rate will be lost on the, the greater interest to be paid? Uh, I mean, is, isn't the answer to that mm. question, well, it doesn't have to be that way, and it only is that way because of, uh, uh, because of, the, uh, because of this neoclassic theory? Well, partially. I mean, the, the main the main thing is that banks do adjust their rate of interest to the rate of inflation, but there's a substantial lag in that, particularly when the rate of interest inflation is rising and getting very high. So if you look back in the 70s and, and 80s, when there were periods with extremely high in rates of inflation, quite frequently then the rate of interest was well below the rate of inflation. Yeah. And, de- and therefore, you actually had effectively like a negative rate of interest on your loans. And that certainly played a major role in the, in the 1970s to let people get out of debt uh, even though there's a bit of a debt bubble like in the mid-1970s that began the entire, uh, I, I date the financial financial crisis level of the economy back to 1973. Uh, and you'll see, if you look in the American data, there's a substantial fall in the ratio of private debt to GDP at that point, 73 to 75. The reason the ratio fell is not because debt actually was reduced in, in nominal terms. It's because the rate of growth of, 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 the, of nominal GDP was much greater than the rate of growth of the, the rate of, of interest on debt, and effectively the debt ratio fell because inflation eroded the valuation, the value of outstanding debt. That's the sort of phenomenon I'm talking about, making it uh, desirable in some periods to have inflation to reduce the debt burden. And that's pretty. Real yeah. And yeah. that and that could be where we are now. You know that we uh, we'll go through a period where we start to see inflation increase, but we're still at uh, at very low interest rates, uh, and so that could help ease the the debt that we've been. I mean, obviously not enough because the debt levels are now so huge, but it could certainly help to ease some of that debt that's being carried all around the world. Sorry, maybe in your dreams. <laughs> <laughs> As I say, it's uh, it's all very much. Inflation won't happen. Uh, With the level of debt we have right now, there's a a causal link between the level of debt and the rate of price inflation. And this is given to be an answer for a a more complex answer for for another podcast. But when you when you have a high level of private debt like you have right now, that tends to go hand in hand with low level of inflation, and in fact heading towards deflation. And then when deflation hits, that's the real danger because if you have negative inflation, that prices are actually falling then even if the real interest rate falls to zero, which of course it, the nominal rate falls to zero, which, which it, it won't do for commercial loans, it'll fall at most to about you know 1%, uh, then every percent that inflation is below zero is actually an, an extra percentage real interest rate that you're actually carrying. And this is, what, this is what Fisher first identified back in the 1930s when the rate of deflation was as high as 12% per annum. 
But he said in that particular situation, uh, they have a, a, a fall in the nominal rate of interest, but a massive increase in the real rate of interest, which makes the repayment of debt even harder. And that's the real danger of deflation. It's got bugger all to do with people delaying their purchases. It's got a hell of a lot to do with the ne- the, the negative real uh, inflation rate, meaning a very high rate of real interest and therefore compounding debt when debt is the main problem that actually caused the downturn in the first place. No, I'm just uh, just writing a letter here to Janet Yellen telling her that uh, inflation is not coming back, so don't count on it. Uh, <laughs> good to talk, Steve. Uh, look, next time uh, we're going to talk about um, the Brexit. I know you are a big supporter. I want to quiz you on the good reasons versus the bad reasons for uh, for Britain getting out of Europe. So we'll talk about that next time. Okay. One of the few things that uh, he and I disagree on, but maybe he will sway me as a one of the, uh, what are we now called? Uh, remoners. Uh, so we'll talk about Brexit next time on the Debunking Economics Podcast. I'm Phil Dobby. He was Steve Keen. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you again. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.